The temperature is nice and warm in the Boiling Point Podcast studio, so come on in, get cozy, and let's enjoy the conversation. We empower leaders through thoughtful discussions to positively impact our world. Our host, Dave Vale, founder and CEO of Vision Coaching, Inc., is highlighting how we can thrive in business communities. Our conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, and inspirational storytellers are shining a spotlight on empowerment. Joining Dave this week is our special guest host, Emily Roger. Let's join the conversation with Dave and Emily. Hello, Dave. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to the Boiling Point Podcast. Dave, how are you? I'm good. I have not changed uh, the butterflies behind me. Um, so you, you you really seem to like those. And um, I think it's good to switch things up every once in a while. And, yeah. Um, yeah. So but, and to learn that um, that you were surprised that I like butterflies. <laughs> hey, learn something new every day. Do you know what else I learned? Um, this morning, I was listening to older episodes of the Boiling Point podcast way back when a man by the name of Greg, uh, what's his last name? I don't know. I can't remember. <laughs> so long ago. <laughs> Mr. Greg Hemmings, the one and only. Um, And you guys had on Laura Calder. And it was an episode called Improving Your Hosting Abilities. And for some reason, that kind of showed up on my screen and I started listening to it. And it was fascinating. So listeners, go back and listen to that. But in that, it was you made the comparison around hosting and that kind of like who we are as a host like when we have somebody come into our home that that very much is similar to our coaching presence and so now when I get ready to go to your house next for dinner I'm expecting butterfly napkins I'm expecting yeah yeah we we actually yeah we're we're, uh I think it's good I don't know it's it's gonna be at our house we got the team coming together and and I, I should be at our place but um yeah, what, what I'll encourage you not to do is look at the garage door uh, as you come in because they're they're peppered with um, hockey puck um, marks all over. And I just thought, you know what? Is it should we fix this now or maybe when kids are gone? So that's yeah. the approach. And and uh, I have to tell everyone before they come because people are shocked when they come. Like, oh my god, what you fix that, Dave? And it's like. I'll fix it and I'll just have to fix it again, right? Actually, I won't fix it. I'll have someone else fix it because I'm I'm not a very I'm not a very handy person myself. Well, and the memories that that garage door would hold. Yeah, the problem is the broken windows. Um, that's <laughs> a, that's a <laughs> oh man. So um, so we're, sometimes we get to bring guests back, and um, this is one of those times. And we're gonna we're gonna um, get Lino to jump in in a second. He's been um, preparing for this interview for the last couple of days he said um <laughs> in, in new orleans um with his wife hanging out talking about a great experience and has arrived back in canada and is jumping on with us and is just said okay what are we going to talk about but lino uh welcome back and i i didn't have the chance to meet you initially but the the uh the uh some previous hosts said they really enjoyed the conversation it was very rich and uh, there's an opportunity to bring you back. And, and we said, absolutely, 100%. Thanks, Dave. Appreciate it. I'm super excited to be here. So what? tell us about New Orleans. Oh, geez, about New Orleans. I was there uh, giving a conference, and it was one of those very rare occasions where went, my wife couldn't join me. So we got to experience Bourbon Street and more craw daddies than I could ever <laughs> describe 
went into my belly. So it, it was a it was a, a lovely couple of days. Um, what, was, what was the conference? What, what, what were we speaking at? What conference? Um, it, I, it, MTMS. I couldn't tell you what the full conference is, but it, um, but that was the conference. Okay. All right. It was it was a management leadership conference and. I just flew in, did my thing for a few hours. Yeah. No, and I'm just thinking about, because it kind of leads into probably what we're going to talk about, but what, what do people ask you to speak on? Um, I was talking about what we do, which is diversity intelligence. Essentially, uh, you know, I think we've gotten past that notion that good leaders push or pull. Uh, we finally start to recognize that good leaders are willingly followed. And when you when you layer emotional intelligence over what good leadership, it makes perfect sense. But without an understanding of how social oppression layers on top of that, it's difficult to be the best leader that you can be if if you don't see those connections. That if you're a male leader of, of female staff, if you're a white leader of staff of color, that those power dynamics come into play. And you don't get to take that hat off any more than you get to take your leadership hat off when you walk in a room. So that recognition is pretty important. Yeah, and even before we kind of dive in uh, way into that, which I'm excited to do, but um, for our listeners who did not get to hear you on the previous podcast, do you want to introduce yourself and just say what it is that you do, the area that you work in, and uh, why New Orleans is bringing you down to speak there? <laughs> for sure. Um, my name is Lino Caramancheri. I'm a sociologist. Um, I'm trying to think how many years ago we came to start to do this, but I graduated with my, with my doctorate about 20 years ago. And I think the first 10, 12 years, I did what I was, I thought was good work. I was doing a lot of consulting in organizations, trying to bring diversity, equity, inclusion uh, into their organizations. And much to my chagrin, I discovered uh, that if I left or if the champion or the CEO left, everything just went back to the way it was. Mm -hmm. um, that was, it, you know, pretty untenable. So um, I set out to create a software um, and, you know, after a year and a half of a lot of effort and a lot of personal money, <laughs> I discovered that, you know, sociologists maybe shouldn't try to discover or develop a software all, all on their own. And I was uh, at a social gathering and bumped into a, a, a friend of mine, Mike Wright. And, you know, he said, what are you doing these days? I said, I'm trying to create some software. I can't make it work. And. He gave me a look that only an old friend can give you that, you know, in silence lets you know he thinks you're an idiot. <laughs> Looked at me fairly sternly said, you do know I'm in software, right? So, because Mike had been in software for some 20 years. And so we got together uh, with some other colleagues and we formed Mesh. And now we, we created a pretty robust uh, operating system. It is the only uh, real DEI operating system in the world. Uh, and essentially, when you plug in what we do in your organization, it helps to make DEI systemic, uh, scalable, sustainable uh, in ways that don't drive all the friction in how DEI normally is kind of run in organizations. That's in a nutshell. That is what we do. <laughs> I think there's a lot there. So let's try to unpack this a little bit. Um, so, you, well, actually, I, I'll... I'll um, I can relate to your misery of trying to create software, um, not having that background. I did the same the same thing 
Um, and it was a painful experience. And Mike would have looked at me the exact same way. <laughs> I'm sure. And Mike, who, who we both know. And, 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 uh, and I remember him telling me about the work you guys were doing together early days. And, and it was, um, it, it, it feels like the DEI conversation is a little more mainstream than even, um, you know, whatever, however many years ago when you guys started this are you are you noticing that is the, are the conversations changing or the understanding changing like what what's what's different now well you know it's it's funny actually you, you hit the nail on the head and split it at the right two points uh, has the conversation changed is is a, a clear yes but the other piece about you know what we're actually doing unfortunately is is not a, a fervent yes. Um, I think particularly with with me too. Um, you know, the door opened a crack, but then there was still enough resistance. There was still enough, uh, and I'm just going to be blunt. There were still enough men in power who would say, "Oh well, you know, they're sitting where it doesn't exist." There's a few bad apples. They're still able to do that nonsense. Uh, but I think after George Floyd was murdered uh, on video with witnesses, it became difficult for folks to kind of poo-poo away, right? Um, you know, if I say it this way, really try to process what I'm saying. It, it took a man getting tortured for nine plus minutes on video for the Washington Redskins to think, maybe we shouldn't have a racial slur as our, as our team name and for people to stop using history and tradition and, and culture as an excuse like that. That's what it took. Right. So the conversation very much changed. So now all of a sudden there's more recognition in the U S uh, $8 billion a year spent on diversity training now. Right. $8 billion. This is the other end of your question though. I've been doing diversity training for 30 years. And we've got decades of evidence on top of that, that standard diversity training doesn't do anything. Mm. We have evidence that this can, you know, unconscious bias training, that it does literally nothing. And that the little bit that it does do is actually drive friction internally in organizations. So on the one hand, we have this recognition that DEI is tied to employee turnover and that toxic culture is 10 times more likely to contribute to attrition and, and, uh, that churn than anything else. But the efforts that organizations are making at doing DEI are the same bloody things they've been doing for 30 years. Um, and part of the challenge is they don't really understand what the problem is. Right. Well, go ahead, Emily. I can tell you got to... no, go for it. Go for it. No, I was just going to say, but you know, there's a, there, I was looking at um, some notes, uh, uh, you know, kind of, your bio, and then uh, there's one statement that I thought was really interesting. I'm just going to read it because I won't uh, make sure. I, um, it was data. You just mentioned the $8 billion. Um, this, a recent study found that there are more CEOs named Michael and Mark than female CEOs in Canada. That And I, I shouldn't laugh, but I just, it's so comical. To, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, seriously? Yeah. Like, that's, that is bizarre to hear. Uh, and I think it's a, I think it's a really good data point because it kind of, it just 
it, it makes you go, really? Like, wow. Like, that, that is shocking. So can I, can I speak to that super quickly? Because yeah. that data point itself gives you a really clear parallel as to why what standard approaches to DER are and why they don't work. So imagine someone said that to you. They said, there are more CEOs named Michael and Mark than there are female CEOs, period, in Canada. And you went, oh my goodness, let's, like, let's hire more female CEOs whose names don't start with an M. Like it's 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 a it's a ludicrous starting point, right? To just say, hey, it's the the name things are involved involved in this, so let's suggest it that way. If there is a female CEO, potential CEO whose name happens to be Michael, I actually know two. Let's not hire her because then there would be a Michael name in there. So it would be this ludicrous surface level understanding of what the problem is, right? It's not dissimilar from folks who look like again. There was a Mercer study. Um, done in the financial sector, 2017, uh, at the, at focus specifically on gender. At the professional level, women made up about 49%. By the time you were at the executive suites, it was down to 15%. Not surprising, we all guessed that. But the interesting thing is by the time you got to the executive suite, they were leaving at twice the rate of their male counterparts. So just, just like that, the, the name data point gives the really clear example that there's just so many bloody men that you could have a couple names representing more than there are women in the position right, right? Yeah. well if i look at that data point and say you know they're leaving at twice the rate of men there's only 15 let's plug some more holes Let, let's get some more women in those positions because that's what the problem is right except that's sort of like being in a boat full of water and being really happy you get a pail unless you realize there's a hole in the hull the questions that don't get asked are why aren't women getting hired? Why aren't women getting promoted? Not just because people are keeping them down, but why aren't qualified people rising up? Where are the glass walls for women of color and LGBT folks? And why are they leaving at higher rates? There's this whole complex of problems, but the approaches that traditionally get used are these surface level approaches. Uh, let's train everybody. That implies that the issue is with a lack of knowledge, but that's not where the issue is. So uh, the, the, another one of these new approaches to DEI is this whole repressive, don't say this word, don't say that word that comes out in training, which is divisive and causes friction and understandably so because it's a ludicrous approach to doing this work. And none of these things take the real problem into consideration, which is social power. All those big is words that nobody wants to talk about, right? That's what's really driving the issue, but none of those old approaches tackle it. And so you talk about what the like the specific is not the issue. So then like what is like what is the like it's like what's the magic pill to fix it? And so, what is the issue? So the issue is I can simplify it really easily. You guys, if if I said to you racism is a bad thing, you'd be nodding your heads, no problem. Uh, sexism is is a bad thing. You'd agree with me on that one too. Heterosexism, religious oppression, all of those things are bad things. We're also together on this notion, people are generally good. I mean, we're going to get our Adolf Hitlers every once in a while, but human beings are generally good. Mm -hmm. If we agree on all of these things, we're stuck with a math problem. If all of these things are bad and human beings are generally good, these things... 
They ought to be gone. But we shouldn't, we shouldn't be dealing with them 500 years after their inception. Yeah. And so the only resolution to this math problem is these things are bad. Human beings are generally good, but these things are fundamentally complex. And they run underneath the surface. And the only way they maintain, reproduce, and support each other is if good, ethical, kind, decent, moral people take part in that system every day without recognizing they do it. And so the challenge with, with DEI in organizations is whether the word is diversity or equity or inclusion, none of those tap into the real issue, which is social oppression. Racism, sexism, heterosexism, ableism, classism, ageism, ethnic oppression, religious oppression. These are the real kind of, these are the, the, the multiple heads of a hydra, if you will. And the only way you address those pieces together, because they maintain, reproduce, and support each other, is to do work that is systemic, to do work that is scalable, to do work that is sustainable. Because if all, if you do a bunch of training, it's kind of a throw it against the wall, spray it, spray it, everyone in the organization, and pray it works. Yeah. And that's what organizations do. And spend, again, billions of dollars every year on that. What are, you know, for you, for you, you know, as you, as you look at, um, you know, some, some practices that you feel are getting at the root of it, that, um, that whether you've been a part of or not, but like, what, what are some examples that people could latch on to of, of, you know, yeah, they're, they're starting to do the right thing here. Like they're, they're getting at the root of, of some of these challenges through this initiative, um, or this work or this project or whatever it may be. Well, I, I, there's a number of ways to look at it. I think the most important thing bef before and beyond anything else, we need to start to recognize that there is an expertise that's needed in this field, um, particularly after George Floyd. Thousands of people, and very well-meaning people, started hanging a shingle saying DEI expert, right? Uh, read a couple books and they will go in and do trainings and consult uh, when they have zero background and zero real expertise in the material. And so the explosions shouldn't be surprising. I mean, just in the term itself, and I'm, and I'm going somewhere with this, I suppose. Um, you don't train people in this material. You train people how to put barbecues together. This stuff is super complex. And, and we don't live in a vacuum. So there's all this political stuff that's swirling on the outside of your organizations. And, and in any organizational change process, 30% of people are going to fight you tooth and nail no matter what the change process is. Even if it's good for them, they're going to fight you. So the people that you bring in, A, have to have expertise, and B, need to be able to facilitate movement. And I think that's one of those things that, I think I'm seeing a little bit more of a tiny little bit more of on LinkedIn. People with actual credentials in this field are their voices are starting to come out a little bit more. Um, you know, the cautionary message for everybody is, you know, if you're looking to do stuff in your organization and there's someone on LinkedIn that says, you know, DEI expert, just look down at their creds. 
and see where they got this mysterious expertise from. Because that's one of the things that is starting to shift the people with expertise and, and, and skill sets and facilitation. Massive. It's a big deal in this to move them forward. But then some organizations, like, for instance, one, one of our major clients is Guardian Life Insurance. And they have made the DEI work far more systematized. Um, and it's a get to in the organization. It's not something that's being shoved down people's throats. So when we first started working with them, um, it was very small uh, covert. And that expanded and expanded because their approach was one where this, this is something for you. This is going to benefit you. It's going to benefit our teams. It's going to benefit our culture. And it's just exploded. So that not taking the mandatory repressive approach was incredibly key in, in, in the success for that organization. Um, another one of the big keys is using metrics that are real. Um, you know, again, after George Floyd, every single well-meaning uh, organizational leader that had access to an engagement survey turned their engagement survey surveys inward and asked questions like, do you feel belonging on your team? Right. Because, again, folks went to to Google and punched in DEI best practices. And they unfortunately ended up with what I call the echo chamber of nonsense. It's 30 years of regurgitated junk efforts. And one of those things that came up is belonging is super important, which it is. There's a science that underpins what belonging is. And if I ask you a question like, do you feel belonging? It's not really a really great question. Like. If I ask both of you to picture an elephant, who picture different elephants? One elephant be looking that way, one's looking that way, one's a cartoon, one's real, one be in motion, one standing still. So what do you think happens when I say, do you feel belonging on your team? You have different ideas of what belonging is. Yeah. So because it's, because it's a nonsense question, the data output is nonsense, and then you end up working based on data that's flawed. So real, real metrics are important because they give you real insight and a real opportunity to move forward in a way that makes sense. And so when a company brings on mesh, then are you guys then providing, what is it that you then do? So we have a number of different ways that, that we support organizations to do this. Well, um, no, number one, there are the larger organization, the more commonly this happens. People who are passionate about this and or people who are minoritized themselves often get vested with the portfolio. Here, you, you're going to lead DEI in this organization. And yeah. the challenge, again, because it's so complex, it's almost like setting folks up to fail. So... One of the things we do is we have uh, what we call our DEI builder program, which in a th it's in a three-week sprint. We can help those organizational leaders, and I believe that you can bring two other people from your organization on your team or whatnot to come and join that. We will teach you how to engage a process of DEI change that, again, is systemic, scalable, and sustainable. And we'll move you straight through from how you measure appropriately, how you engage, how you scale the efforts, how you start to hone so that 
all of the effort you're doing is not going to be just one and done lost. So that's just one of the pieces. The other pieces that we do involve that those culture metrics that it was six years of, of, of research and development for us to design what we call our culture benchmarks so that you can get pinpoint accuracy on safety, belonging, inclusion in your organization longitudinally so you can see where you are, plot where you need to go, adjust what you need to adjust. And then we have what we call our inclusive leadership program. Um, one of the real challenges in this field is that the, the science is exceedingly sound, but so much of the effort in the field comes from a political perspective. And so as at case in point from these DEI trainers who will come in and do training that in essence is really incendiary, right? Like if you've never heard terms like power and privilege and social oppression and all of a sudden you're getting material, not just access to material, you're getting material really thrown at you mm-hmm. that is terrifying for a lot of folks, right? It's essentially throwing people into the deep end of the of the pool and being surprised that they're splashing and can't swim and drown. And um, what has been allowed to happen because the politicized nature of the field is that if, you know, if I'm one of these trainers and I come in and you don't like it, you resist and you give me bad ratings, I can then say, well, you're that's because you're resistant. That's because you're you're oppressive. That's like the kid in high school who fails the test and blames the teacher. Right? Oh, teacher hates me. It was an unfair test. Well, no, maybe it was your approach. Yeah. So what we've done with our inclusive leadership program is we've mapped out a six-module set that brings people along so that they can understand the depth of the material before they really, really get into the deep end. Like the first, the first part, as adult learners, there's got to be a what's in it for me. Otherwise, why, why am I doing this? Right. That's why so many so many folks feel put upon when they're forced to do diversity training. It's like I'm being asked to take medicine when I don't think I'm sick. So our first module is what we call the virtuous loop. It's it's really about why this is important for the organization, why it helps culture, why it just gets things better. The second module is about self-awareness. This That's the what's in it for me. The third module is about empathy building and compassion, and that builds the what's in it for us. That's really think of it at, at team level. Mm-hmm. It's, only then that, it's only then that we get into the deep stuff. It's only then that we start digging into power and privilege and uh, power dynamics. And we end it with a communication module that really helps people to kind of pull it all together. And across that whole piece, they have personal metrics that provide more of a what's in it for them. And we have a world-class e-learning suite that, that connects to each of these modules so they can build, build through on them. So the major difference, I think, between what we do and, and more or less whatever is out there is it's a systematized approach. So you could do it at the individual level, at the team level, at the leadership level, and at the organizational level, and all moving forward without friction. Yeah. And so when you get to the organizational level and, um, you know, you use Guardian as an example of, so what is, what happens, what big changes do you notice in a company like Guardian that is putting this emphasis around diversity and equity and inclusion training? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, and this is not even anecdotal in terms of, of cultural health and well-being. 
you can plot things along the lines of how how many folks want to do this kind of work, right? But what they built is they call it their Jedi program. And something that's really, really important about what they have done, it's actually quite honestly, it's groundbreaking. Um, normally, when DEI is done in organizations, A, it sits on the side of somebody's desk and it's seen as a nice to have. It's not a, it's not a need to have. Mm-hmm. When you're in an organization, what is your incentive to engage DEI if it's never going to have any kind of connection to your advancement in your career or anything else? Well, at Guardian, being a Jedi, so that's justice, equity, diversity, inclusion, being a Jedi means something at Guardian. And there's value put on it. And so when you're looking for that leadership move, when you're looking to to kind of advance things, people will look and say, have you, have you done the Jedi program? That's a, that's a big statement from leadership. That's a really big statement. And it's, again, it's been growing like wildfire. Yeah. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at 4Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. And so how do companies really shift that have to versus get to thought around it for, for doing these type of trainings? Um, well, I mean, if I can frame it this way, DEI is an organizational change process. Um, so it requires a lot of the same levers as any organizational change process. Um, I mentioned the 30% before in, in any organizational change process, 20% of folks jump on board before you start. They like change. They're optimistic. Those 30% fight you tooth and nail. And you got 50% who sit right in the middle. They're, they're the, they're the pliable, uh, 50%. They'll move one or you just got to give them a reason to move. So imagine for a second, I'm... (laughs) I'm the consultant that comes into your organization. Imagine your leadership saw me too, saw George Floyd and said, listen, this far, no further. At this organization, we're going to be inclusive. And they hire me to come in and start doing some good consulting and training work. And first thing I start insisting is that you should no longer use words like steps. I want to clarify why I'm saying that. I was on a panel. And one of these shingle hangers was was on the panel with me and started to tell this group of 500 people, don't use the word steps anymore because some people are in wheelchairs. Like steps, and these are the steps we're going to take in this program. So I'm going to say what I can see on your faces. This is asinine. Like this, this is insane. 
Like when you start putting this kind of repressive stuff that has no basis in science whatsoever, it's just this person's opinion. It, this is which you called this the low hanging fruit of DEI, the yeah. tell people how to live and what to do approach. All that does is drive friction. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's just counterproductive. So part of how you get people into this get to space is unfortunately, you got to be able to combat that stuff before you start. Because again, we don't live in a vacuum. There's lots of information about this out there. People know exactly what's going to be, and, and all the war on Christmas is coming soon. Everybody knows that, right? <laughs> so I mean, there's, there's all of these politicized voices out there that are going to amplify any and all of these negative approaches. And it doesn't help that some of the approaches are coming from a place of goodwill and good intent, but they're just ill-informed. Like, have either of you heard of uh, trigger warnings? No. So... Trigger warnings were started on the internet around early 2000s. It was this idea that if you had trauma in your life, uh, you can be triggered by that trauma, right? So if you're going to talk about something dicey or potentially traumatic for people, you say trigger warning and give them a give them forewarning of it, right? Okay. It exploded on the internet, made its way onto university campuses, and professors were getting in trouble because they weren't giving trigger warnings before their before their lectures. And then it slowly made it out into the work world too. And in social work in particular, this, this trigger warning stuff is big. There's zero evidence that they they actually do anything. In fact, the most recent research out of Harvard tells you they're actually problematic for the people you're trying to help. And huh. I can really easily watch this. Whatever you do, don't think of a purple elephant. Right. Totally. And you yeah. talk about purple elephant, right? <laughs> so if I go trigger warning, we're going to talk about X. Well, everybody yeah. trauma on X is going to start having an anxiety. <laughs> right. So you have all of these folks who are doing what they truly believe to be good work, but because they have no expertise in the field, they fall back on, on these you know, I think it's going to work, so I'm going to try this approach. So part of what you do, you have to do to make DEI a get to rather than a got to is have somebody with a degree of expertise in the field present it in a way that is absent politics. Because the, the science is sound. Racism is a bad thing, and it lives out in certain ways. Sexism is a bad thing, and it lives out in certain ways. And it, it's not about anyone's heart, their ethics, their morals. It doesn't mean you're a bad person if you're a white male. It doesn't mean you're a bad person if you're a heterosexual. But unfortunately, all, you're fighting all that political stuff before you even start your journey in your organization. So the first thing you need to be able to do is introduce a way to mitigate that nonsense. Because again, you're trying to get that 50%. You're trying to get the 30 is going to fight you no matter what you do. You got to get the 50%. So number one, introduce the 50% to the material in a way that they can hear, that they, don't, that they don't get scared, that they can process, that they can understand, that they can integrate into their world. So there's value for it and provide it in a way that makes them want to work with the material. But again, yeah. that process is a lot of what we do in our builder program. I think, it's, I think you know, it makes a lot, actually, as you described, it makes a lot of sense because um, you know, you've, you know, I've heard you hear all the statements about you know now I'm not allowed to say this word, and so it essentially, it, 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 
you know, and it, it, the conversation completely changes at that point, I find, right? Because then it, it almost, um, it's almost as if to say that this is, this is silly to even talk about any of this, which is not the case. Like it's, you know, to conflate one with the other. So I, I really like this idea of this inclusive leadership program. And it sounds to me like, let's involve you in this journey. Like what, let's let you be part of this. And, um, it's involved and in, you know, in, in some of the work we do, um, you know, like someone wants to, you know, someone maybe has gone through a challenging time as, as a leader and they say, you know, you, you're going to get a coach and you're going to do a 360. And, and I'd always say like, I, I, that's really like, you know, we don't need hostages here because the, guess what the outcome is going to be. It's not going to be, well, why don't you involve the person and let them drive this process and be involved and feel like they have some sense of control um, because you're going to have a much better outcome as a result. And philosophically, it sounds like you're doing the same thing, right? Instead of, so, so, and, and help, help people uh, help uncover some of this and help people, you know, understand this and learn this. And, and particularly I would say white males would, you know, would probably benefit the most from an approach like this, um, you know, given that, that this, it's very easy to feel like, you know, wow, it's just because I look this way. Um, that's not a big enough reason not to get involved in this. So to me, it makes, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And, and, you know, I would be lying if I didn't say I'm, I get entirely frustrated by the standard approach that's out there. Cause what it generally does is it serves to prevent people from engaging this work. It prevents people like decent human beings. If you tell them they're bad often enough, they might not want to listen to you anymore. You know, call, call me crazy. And so that's that old DEI, you know, wrist slapping approach. It's, is just fundamentally flawed. And if you give people a reason to want to engage, because it's going to be good for them and their relationships in, in every aspect, professional and personal. Why the hell wouldn't you want to engage it? You know, the other thing is that would, I'm guessing it invites more conversations and, and deeper conversations. And there's like, there's nothing that I appreciate more than someone to have a conversation where I can ask really dumb questions because I just, yeah. I really want to be informed. I just want to know, like, I don't, I'm not coming with a position. I just need to understand because I don't, I don't understand it or I, or I think I understand it or maybe I'm ill-informed, but I, you know, there's, and it's nothing better than the, the safe spaces to have conversations where you can ask, you know, really what, what might be kind of dumb questions because uh, I'm, I'm unconsciously incompetent, you know, on certain topics. I just don't know what I don't know. Um, and so to feel like, I'm wrong or anyone's wrong in those situations, I don't think helps evolve the conversation. And what I'm, I kind of feel like there's just such, you know, if, you, if, if we just take it away from DEI for a sec, but just, just everything's so polarized or appears to be, but you know, not when you get with a group of people that, you know, might all look different, they might come from different backgrounds, but you have a safe place and you, you understand each other, you can have really rich dialogue. And I think a lot of learning can occur. Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the, the big key there with, with social oppression is that that dialogue needs to be 
uh, facilitated. And I'll, I'll give you a really simple reason why. And facilitated by someone who has an expertise in the field. Um, have either of you ever had a micromanaging boss? Yes. Okay. Uh, was it a Monday to Friday job, Emily? Okay. So I can take a pretty good guess as to when your stress starts. Sundays between three and five o'clock. Right. Nail on the head. Yep. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> what happens on Sunday between three and five o'clock is your little early warning sentinel, your amygdala, sends a message on a neurotransmitter, 12 milliseconds. The second you start to think about, I got to go back to work. It's a really simple message. It sounds like this. You're going to have dinner. You're going to watch a couple shows, maybe read some of that book, and then you're going to sleep. You know, wake up and go back there. And it starts to put your body into an elevated baseline level of stress, preparing you for the next event. Yeah. And depending on how nasty that micromanager is, you and how long you got to work with, you might, you might not sleep well that night. It can start giving you insomnia. And if you work with that person for a really long period of time, heart-related diseases, stress-related diseases, hypertension, all sorts of other things, right? Yeah. And that's in relation to one person in a given space for a period of time, you know, you got to deal with them because they have power over you. Yeah. When's the next time you're going to experience sexism? Who's it going to come from? How long will the duration of the event be? Will your personal experience or professional experience impact just you or impact your family? The problem with social oppression is if you don't know from where, from who, how long, it, you, you, you end up physiologically and psychologically having to be ever aware and ever prepared for that next event. Right? Yeah. So we're starting to discover that there are these stress disorders that are most likely connected to experiences of social oppression. So the conversation thing is really useful, but when it's not facilitated by people with expertise in the field, what ends up happening is the most vulnerable people <laughs> are going to be talking about their own pain with people who don't necessarily get it. So as an example, can you think of the last time you had a man in your life say something sexist to you? And I don't mean uh, like the obvious gross sexist thing that anyone around could go, oh, that was inappropriate. I mean, the stuff, the subtle stuff that just pisses you off. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden now you got, you, you have a decision to make. Do I say something? Do I not say something? Mm -hmm. And on those occasions when you said something, did it work out perfectly like he just got it? Or did you hear anything like the following in return? I didn't mean it that way. You shouldn't you shouldn't take it that way. You're being too sensitive. Yeah. Right. I had, I had an example of that actually yesterday about an article that I had wrote and someone pointed it out about how it was so great to see a woman holding a fish in a fly fishing magazine. And yeah, it led to a conversation. And it was, of course, like, oh, well, no, 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 you took it the wrong way. But I'm like, but that's just that's what you said. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so there's this giant gap between his intent and the mm -hmm. impact because you don't get to escape sexism, right? Mm -hmm. And added extra, and this is the super bonus of social oppression. Imagine you didn't say anything or didn't get him to get it. Now you got to go home. And when you go home, do you have you ever gone through this process? Oh, I swear to God, I should have. The next time he does, I'm gonna. Does this sound familiar? Oh, yeah, at three o'clock in the morning, I think of all the things that I could have said that would have just been brilliant. Right. And in the right context, that's called ruminative preoccupation. It's potentially a symptom of post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm -hmm. 
because whether it's sexism or racism or heterosexism, these things are potentially traumatic because you don't get to escape it. It's like for, for folks who have, I hate saying it this way, but I, I, I suppose I hope it makes a point. For people who experience systems of abuse, like standard abuse that you would think of, abuse in a home, bullying, that kind of stuff, they get a benefit that you and I don't in terms of social oppression. The benefit is a post. They get to have post-traumatic stress disorder. Where's your post for sexism? When's it going to stop for you? Where's my post for racism? When does it stop for me? Right? And so conversations, again, which blew up a few years ago, let's have some good conversations in the workplace. It's a great idea, but they have to be facilitated by people with expertise. When they are not, things blow up. And when they blow up, they're usually for minoritized folks and they blow up in silence in their own heads. Part of the reason I started my consulting company 20-something years ago is I got absolutely sick and tired of training people in my organization and hearing people saying the most offensive, violating, homophobic junk and having to smile at them in the hallway the next day. Mm. It became completely, it was un, untenable isn't even a word for it. So what we unfortunately do to minoritize folks in organizations today because we don't understand the depth of the field is we put people in positions where they might have to talk about their own pain and have people doubting them. Well, maybe you should have done this. Maybe you should have done this. Well, next time you should try it. <laughs> and again, it all comes from good places, but because the field is so complex and people don't understand it, we, we end up putting some of our most vulnerable people in those positions. You know, the, the, the theme is certainly about, you know, expertise, right? And making sure. So what, what should like a, an HR leader, what kind of expertise when it comes to DEI do you think is really, you know, at, at a minimum, it's this, ideally it's this, just, just so people know what to look for. Um, well, so number one, and, and folks will not like that I say this piece, but there is just a reality to it. Um, you've been doing leadership development for how long, Dave? A uh, couple decades. couple decades. So I'm going to take a course and learn what you know. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> All right, I learned a whole bunch. <laughs> I mean, the, the the other way to look at this is because I was I was at another conference recently and someone was talking about implementing a train the trainer program for DEI. I'm like, because they didn't have the money to hire in professionals. Okay. So if you had an engineering core in your organization and you couldn't hire you know, more engineers, would you just take your, I don't know, janitorial staff, put them in an engineering course for a couple of days and let them loose in the organization? They have different skill sets. They have different levels, types of education. You don't, you can't just plug those folks in. So if you are an HR generalist, you, you are unlike, I spent 13 years in formal education in this field and I learn new things once a week. So to suggest that someone in HR is just going to be able to take a course or something to become a DEI expert is a fool's errand. But what they can do is become experts in driving DEI in their organizations. That is the exact reason that we put the DEI Builder Program together. Because you don't need DEI expertise to lead a change 
process that is DEI specific because you're going to leverage expertise where you need to leverage the expertise, but you can help form coalitions. You can uh, do the action planning. If you're a large enough organization and you have an internal comms department, you can work in tandem with that internal comms department to ensure that what's going on is, is, is being messaged properly in the organization. So I think the best thing in the world that HR generalists can do is get really good at the process of engaging DEI in a way that is systemic and scalable and sustainable. Yeah. You know, I I just can't help but make this comparison just because, you know, what you're describing um, is, and, 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 you know, it doesn't have nearly the the impact that, you know, what you're describing, but, you know, what we've learned is over the years is you go in, you you know, we want to talk about coaching and well, everyone's coaching. Right. And and then when we talk, well, let's anyway, I couldn't agree with more of what you're saying. But when you say coaching, like, what are you describing? And you might be talking to the, the HR leader and, and they feel like they should know what coaching is. It's not fair to them because they haven't any formal education. Right. And it's very hard. It is, and so it's a delicate dance that you're describing of not, um, you know, kind of not like recognizing where they're coming from. They're coming from a good place and they want to together and that you can't and then when you when you deliver coaching training well you need two different skills you need an expertise in coaching my belief like so you've, you've got a lot of practical knowledge and you've been a practitioner and you understand facilitation and training which are and then they don't always coexist right nope. and then people say well what you know and, and because you know and, and to be fair i was one of those people i was going to coach someone and then i read my first book and i went Man, what is this thing? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and that, it's not nearly, and, and I mean, there's, and it's, it's complex and it's nuanced, but nothing like DEI. So I, I'm just appreciating what you're saying, Lino, and um, and I think I think it's really uh, what's really important is is as as vendors out there is we understand how to stay in our lane and how to collaborate with or, you know like like Mesh as an example and others that have that that deep knowledge. And I think it's it's um, it's not as smart to be you know so general that you do everything because um, it's it's just it's just challenging and you might have the, the best of intentions but um, I think your point is really anyway is is landing with me and I can appreciate it because I've had in a different way similar conversations. No, I, um, I, I, yeah. Well, and, and well, when how anyone can how anyone can call themselves a coach and how anyone can just call themselves a DEI expert. It's like I can tomorrow say, oh, well, I I uh, I was on a podcast with Dr. Lino and now I am a expert in. No. <laughs> yeah. 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 Like, life, life coaching is like the everybody's a life coach now, it would seem. It's really yeah. easy to do. Apparently, the, the way I tend to approach it is say, you know, you know, maybe, and I, you know, I don't know, we've run across crowds. Maybe they they do excellent job, but you know, how would we know if they don't have, you know, it just anyways, it's just so it's it's just really validating that. Um, but I can tell you from my for just in my experience in the last fifty minutes, um, you've really enlightened me, you know, and um, and, and it reminded me of how far I have away from any kind of expertise in this. Um, but I really appreciate your stories and, and um, you have a very, uh, just a really, a real gift of disarming and, and making it accessible um, to me anyways. And I'm, I'm guessing Emily's feeling the same way because I could see her nodding. 
or even just to just to tap into Emily's experience. And, you know, as I'm listening to you describe that, and maybe you felt this way, um, it's a real gift um, because you're, you're helping me understand what your experience would have been, Emily. And just for all the listeners, it certainly was not me that said, um, <laughs> it's so nice to see a woman carrying a, a fish. Um, but, but, I, but, but I mean, what I really appreciate is, that, you know, and, and I get this from my daughters, which is, is so, it, it was like, you know, we're sitting at a Catholic church service and, and my daughter says, why are there no women up front? And I was like, you know, that's a really excellent question. You should ask your mom. <laughs> I'm not a Catholic. You know what I mean? And I'm, now I'm all the Catholics be mad at me. But, but the point is, um, you know, I mean, it, it sometimes takes that lens. And it takes a different perspective. And to share that just to, to open our minds. So thank you for doing that. Uh, I, I think we, we, people, people are going to want to, you know, drag you over across, you know, to, to New Orleans or Los Angeles or wherever they or, or maybe the Yukon Territory to hear you speak. How do they how do they reach out to you? How do they learn more about you? Uh, I think the easiest route is just punch in meshdiversity.com. And if uh, you, you need me for a speaking engagement, that's the easiest way to do it. If you want a demo for our wickedly cool software, you can plug that in there too. That's the easiest route. Um, well, thank you so much. And we, we, we're going to do some takeaways here. And, I'll, and, and Emily's been letting me go first. I'm going to get her to go first. But before, I'll, I'll, I'll say this as part of my takeaway. Emily, what do you, what do you take away? Well, first of all, to uh, Davis, being head of vision coaching, you are also not the boss that stresses me out at Sunday. That was years ago in my life. That is <laughs> you were going to correct me yeah, on. Not, exactly. Far <laughs> from it. I would be a terrible, oh my gosh. And the only reason I said I've never had a micromanaging boss is that I've really never worked for anyone except myself. So yeah. I would have said yes, and then I would have been in trouble at home. And my wife would have said, well, I don't micromanage you. <laughs> Too funny. It. My takeaway is, you know, in coaching, I say to my clients of how coaching is always safe, but it's not always comfortable. And that... I have found myself feeling intimidated at times to have conversations around DEI, fear of saying the wrong words, fear of offending someone, fear of saying something that's going to make me just sound so stupid. And you, I, a couple of days ago, went down the rabbit hole of watching YouTube videos of Dr. Lino, and <laughs> I could have watched them for days and seeing that how as a keynote speaker, when you're giving your talks that you were able to create that safe space in talking about things that aren't always comfortable and that you were able to create that space today. And I am incredibly grateful for being able to have this conversation with you and learn from it. Normally, I feel like I do kind of have a takeaway at the end of a conversation. I feel like this is one that this information and everything that we have talked about really just needs to marinate. Um, so thank you for creating such an impact on me today. Appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, I would. The, well, first, one one of the most obvious ones is, is, um, you know, get someone who's technically oriented to help you build tech. Um, would be yes. the one, all right? And, uh, we, Lino and I both learned the hard way. And you got a crew around you that I know are just so strong. But more than that, they're actually very passionate about what you're doing. 
Yeah. Um, you mentioned Mike. Um, he, you know, he would he would have spoke as passionately about the tech as as the as the vision you have. So I just wanted to mention that. Um, and then the other thing would just be, um, I just I like I like the notion of just like how do we capture that fifty percent, right? And in a way, I think. And I, I would have, I would, and I maybe the, the the stats are wrong, but I've always said like, you know, if you speak, there's that twenty percent that just hate you, or or think you're boring or whatever. And at least in my experience, twenty percent think, yeah, man, you rock. And then you really want to capture that middle group is what you're saying. But but the, but part of what you're saying, I think, as well for me, what lands is is that reminder of you know you like you just got to be um, kind to that twenty percent that aren't with you, and but not try to change them. Because it's 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 just not going to happen, um, and and maybe not get get pulled into that because that's that doesn't seem like the best use of energy. So, um, so there there that's for me. Um, thank you so much, Lino. Nice having you on again, and uh, awesome work you're doing. And man, things have really evolved in terms of the training and some of the programs you have, and how you're using the tech. And congratulations. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Emma. I appreciate that. Thank you. Okay, and we're gonna let. Uh, yeah, and we will um, share Lino's first uh, episode before we, we post this one so people can kind of see that evolution and how the, the topics were discussed. Um, and if you want to find that episode, you can hand over to our website at boilingpointpodcast.com. Uh, when we release this, we'll release to all podcast channels. Uh, we'll post the video on Facebook and YouTube, and you can connect with us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Boiling Point Podcast. Remember to subscribe and rate our podcast on your favorite listening platform. To find out more, head to our website at boilingpointpodcast.com. You can connect with us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. To find out more about Dave Vale's work, head over to visioncoachinginc.com. Thanks for listening and make sure to check out our next conversation. You looking to make the most out of this life and optimize your personal wellness? Then check out the Natural Man podcast. Join me, host Mike C., as we explore all areas of human wellness, physical, mental, and emotional. Learn strategies to optimize your own well-being and be in the driver's seat of your own health. Remember, your doctor works for you. Learn biohacks, neurohacks, ways to improve sleep, and ways to optimize your body and your mind. Check us out on Apple, Spotify, the Fountain App, and at naturalmanpodcast.com.